Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So at this point, it's our custom to introduce ourselves. Um, to go around the room and introduce ourselves. So I suggest that we pause for a little bit before saying our names so that uh, we try to eventually get to know everybody here. Will take many, many rounds of that. Uh, my name is Oswaldo. Hello, I'm Colin. Michael. I'm Jack. I'm Jesse. I'm Amos. I'm Jerry. I'm Tom. Susan. I'm Michael. I'm David. My name is Jerry. My name is Roy. Jose. Myron. Joey. Dennis. Dale. Kevin. I'm Kay. My name is Michael. I'm Carl. My name is Robert. I'm David. I'm John. Tucker. I'm David. I'm Jeff. I'm Bill. Jeff. I'm Brian. Richard. I'm Peter. Jeff. <laughs> Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is my pleasure now to introduce our, our Dharma speaker, uh, Dale Borglum. He is the founder and executive director of the Living Dying Project. He's a pioneer in the conscious dying movement and has worked directly with thousands of people with life-threatening illnesses and their families for over 30 years. In 1981, Dale founded the first residential facility for people who wish to die consciously in the United States the Dying Center. He has taught and lectured extensively on the topics of spiritual support for those with life-threatening illness, caregiving as a spiritual practice, and healing at the edge of illness, of death, of loss, of crisis. Dale has a BS from UC Berkeley and a PhD from Stanford. He is the co-author of Journey of Awakening, a meditator's guidebook and has taught meditation for over uh, 35 years. So, welcome, Dale. Thank you. It's lovely to see so many familiar faces. Here we are in the middle of December. Hanukkah just happened. Christmas is coming. Before you meet here again, it will be the darkest day of the year. Uh, it is the season of light. Buddhism is the path to enlightenment. As the introduction, the gracious introduction indicated, I've worked a lot with people who are approaching death. And during the near-death experience, what everybody encounters is the light. Nobody hears a great sound or smells a great smell, but they see the light. 
Uh, and the near-death experience is the first part of the dying experience. When we die, we die into the light. All religious traditions, all contemplative traditions, say that, in fact, we are already enlightened. But we've forgotten. We are deluded. We are lost in our opinions of things. And, in fact, right now, we are that light. But it seems that I'm up here, I'm talking to you, you're listening, I have my PhD, you've got what you've got, we're all these separate people. Buddhism is the path of going beyond that illusion of separation. Christ said, unless you ye become like a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, I would guess, is the Christian version of enlightenment. In Buddhism, there are three qualities of the enlightened mind. And when I think about them, they are actually the qualities that a pure, small child lives. One of the qualities is compassion, the open heart meeting suffering. I have a young son myself, and when he was a lot younger, whenever he would see a homeless person, uh, see a suffering animal, he would start crying. Compassion was just his nature. It immediately sprang forth. Another quality of the enlightened mind is clarity. We see things exactly the way they are, not the way we think they are or hope they should be or remember that they might have been, but being completely, completely present in this moment. Once again, a child is right in the moment. He's not busy thinking about the mortgage or what's going to happen tomorrow. He is, in fact, so busy with his play, with her eating, with her whatever it might be, that uh, there is that crystal clarity in the moment. The third quality of the enlightened mind is spaciousness. Buddhism talks a lot about spaciousness. And... Uh, Spaciousness essentially means that the mind, the heart-mind, is spacious. It's not busy identifying with the notion of I. That it's able to allow experience to come without having to go through the filter of do I like this, what does this mean to me, but that direct, spacious encounter. In physics, there's a very famous uh, equation that relates space and time. And the bigger the space is, the slower time becomes. In the West, a lot of us have a lot of space. We have our own yards, our own houses, but we don't have a lot of time. Uh, in the East, people have a lot of time, but not so much space. And you might find it interesting, instead of thinking about more spaciousness, finding slower time. That when 
you can slow down your perception of time, you can slow down your life, not by moving more slowly necessarily, but having a different relationship with time itself, then the mind becomes spacious. So what is it that prevents the enlightened mind? What is it that happens to this child, this little boy, this little girl who is compassionate, spacious, has this complete clarity. What happens is we begin to form an ego structure. And uh, that's a very necessary and useful thing for a child to do. But as we grow up and have this notion of an eye that has to be protected, it keeps getting between us and the direct experience of uh, our lives. So we think, let me be a Buddhist meditator, and then maybe I can get awakened. Maybe I can become enlightened. The big problem here is that I can never be enlightened. We can only be enlightened from I. So as long as we are identified with this I construct, no matter what kind of spiritual practice we're doing, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we open our hearts, how much I am trying to be a more heartfelt person, we're really moving 180 degrees away from the truth. So that, in fact, maybe one of the main points of spiritual practice is to realize that it's not getting us anywhere, and we have to let go of even that. That meditation isn't a goal-oriented activity at all, but meditation is something that shows us that this I who's meditating is really an illusion. Let me read a short quote from a British teacher of non-dual theory named Rupert Spira. Maybe some of you have heard of Rupert. First we imagine an ego, then we defend it, then express it, then fulfill it, then try to get rid of it, then welcome it, then understand it, and finally see that it is non-existent all the time. So we go through this whole process of having this relationship with our ego structure. Patience and compassion are two qualities that I have been working with a lot myself lately as a way of dealing with my rather persistent ego structure. And in Buddhism, traditionally, there are three qualities, three ways of cultivating patience. One of them is compassion itself, having compassion for the place where you or I are not being patient. Compassion is the ability to keep our heart open in suffering. And in fact, Rumi has a wonderful quote, grief is the garden of compassion. This child who doesn't have an ego structure, who is so in the moment, who is so compassionate, who is so clear 
as he or she begins to be separated from those qualities, begins to feel grief. Traditionally, we think of, typically we think of grief as feeling sad because we've lost something. Somebody has died, a relationship has ended, we've lost one of our identities. But in fact, every negative emotion is a grief reaction. If somebody cuts you off in traffic and you feel angry, you're actually grieving the fact that you're separate from that other person. If you feel uh, separated from God, if you feel separated from yourself and you get depressed or you get angry or you get frightened, those feelings of separation, no matter what emotion arises in response to them, are grief reactions. So this child, as he or she is growing up, begins to learn to deal with grief. Now, I work with dying people not because I'm particularly morbid or because I'm even interested in death per se, but I feel that by being in intimate relationship with death, that I will begin to be almost forced to work with those places where I am not looking at my own grief, where I am pulling back into holding on to this separate sense of self. And in fact, uh, one of my first teachers, Trungpa Rinpoche, said that until we come into intimate contact with death, all spiritual practice will have the quality of being a dilettante. Uh, we can meditate till our knees begin to fall off and we get calluses on our butts. But until, in fact, we know that we're going to die, then we're just doing an exercise. We all know we're going to die intellectually. We all know that. But do we really know that we're going to be alive at the end of this Dharma talk? Is this... Is it possible we can relate to what's going on here today together in a way that even this sentence, even this next moment, might be the last chance we have to look into each other's eyes, to be present, to be with our breath, to feel what's going on in our body. So the first quality in working with ego structure that I'm talking about today is patience. Uh, and compassion, compassion for the place where you can't be patient. Uh, a short poem by Maya Angelou. Seek patience and passion in equal amounts. Patience alone will not build the temple. Passion alone will destroy its walls. So, maybe some people in the room have an easy time with patience and a harder time with passion. Maybe some of you are very passionate but not very patient. I, I fall down on the side of, I've got a lot of passion in my life. I'm not particularly patient. I'm trying to learn to be a bit more patient. We'll get to passion in just a few minutes. He says impatiently. <laughs> okay. So, compassion for the place you're not patient. Compassion 
has, once again, three qualities. It seems like there's always three qualities of everything. Uh, the compassionate heart is, once again, it's spacious, it's warm, and it's connected. So if ever you don't feel connected, right now, if you don't feel connected to me, if I don't feel connected to you, that I think I'm here and you're over there, that we're separate, separate being the quality of grief, grief the reaction to separateness, and spiritual practice transforming the separation of grief into the connectedness of compassion. <clears throat> right now, if you or I can't feel connected, then our work is to open our hearts, our compassionate hearts, one step further so that we can begin to feel that sense of connection. The main quality that I experience of a compassionate heart is a heart of spaciousness. Not something that I'm really doing. It's not like I'm doing compassion. But it's spacious enough that I'm not busy thinking, I'm going to have compassion for you, but there's just that quality of openness, that there's a direct, naked, unmitigated meeting between us. The second quality that cultivates patience is faith. Faith isn't talked about too much in certain schools of Buddhism, certainly not in Vipassana, but it is talked a lot about in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, what do we have faith in? Can you have faith in the Dharma? Can you have faith in truth itself? As long as our motivation here with all this practice stuff is to get happy, is to not feel so bad, to feel better, then we're going to be evaluating each experience as it arises and asking ourselves, is this an experience that's going to bring me more happiness or not? And if it's not, then we tend to try to get rid of it, and if it's one that, tries, that tends to bring us happiness, we'll grab onto it. If, on the other hand, our motivation is truth, then every experience that arises can be showing us, can uh, help us to deepen our relationship with the ongoing process of being with the present, being with truth. And the third quality that cultivates patience is understanding the spacious nature of our being. If we really understand in our minds that, in fact, there isn't this ego structure in a real sense, that it's just a, a construct, that it's a, a constantly changing collection of thoughts and opinions. The path of the mind, really understanding uh, our nature, then we will be patient. And then going beyond Buddhism, I find... I get a lot of my lessons through my body. And I learn a lot of my patience by becoming more embodied, by getting grounded, by dropping down into the, the base of my torso. Uh, even though I have a PhD in mathematics, or maybe because I have a PhD in mathematics, I found that the life of the mind is pretty unsatisfying in terms of becoming present. 
and just learning to be down in my body rather than getting up, being excited about ideas, trying to figure things out. There are people that have a certain kind of mind where, yeah, I, I can figure this out. I can understand ego and non-duality and all these complicated lists that the Buddha put together. But for me, that, that way doesn't really work too well. So compassion, faith, understanding, spaciousness, and embodiment are paths to being patient, beginning to unravel our relationship with ego structure. The other quality that we really need to, let me not put it quite like that, maybe we don't need to, but the other quality that I find very, very useful in working with my own grief, my own ego structure, is, is passion. And once again, I would like to read a poem one that Barat heard last night, Jeff, The Way It Is by William Safford. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do will stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. It's that passionate holding on to the thread. And uh, Goethe, the holy longing. Tell a wise person or else keep silent, because the mass man will mock it right away. I praise what is truly alive, what longs to be burned to death. In the calm water of the love nights, where you were begotten, where you have begotten, a strange feeling comes over you when you see the silent candle burning. Now you are no longer caught up in the obsession with darkness, and a desire for higher lovemaking sweeps you upward. Distance does not make you falter. Now, arriving in magic, flying, and finally, insane for the light, you are the butterfly and you are gone. And so long as you haven't experienced this to die, and so to grow, you are only a troubled guest on this dark earth. So both of these poets are talking about passion. The passion of holding on to that thread, the passion of being willing to die. In Tibetan Buddhism, the foundation practice is to do 100,000 full prostrations, forehead to the floor, and a million mantras. If you had sufficient passion, would one prostration be enough? <laughs> would one mantra be enough? Do, do we need to say a million mantras? 
Do we need to fall to the floor a hundred thousand times? I guess it depends on how stubborn you are, <coughs> how stubborn I am. I guess it depends on how identified we are with that separate ego structure. Do we need to wear it gradually away through repeated again and again and again, surrendering ourselves through uh, this bowing? Ramakrishna, the great Indian saint, said, our duty is to fall down and adore where others only bow. So we can make the gesture of a bow, but are we putting our whole being into it? Is it possible right now, as we're sitting here without falling to the floor, to prostrate ourselves with all of our being, with all of our passion, to that which we trust? to that which we love, to that which is love. <clears throat> I may be drifting a bit away here from Buddhism when I'm talking about love, but I think that in this season of Hanukkah and Christmas and in this Western world here where probably not too many of us are really Buddhists coming out of a Judeo-Christian tradition, that it's a shame to throw out the devotional baby with the bathwater, if you will, and that working with passion, working with heart as an aid, as a foundation, as a support to your practice of the mind can be incredibly useful. Five years and a few days ago, I got a phone call, and somebody said, you know those uh, many hundreds of thousands of dollars you had invested with Bernard Madoff? I said, yeah. He said, they're gone. And uh, at that point, my practice really strengthened. <laughs> I had been this complacent guy living in Marin, hiking on Mount Tam, semi-retired, uh, enjoying the good life and all of a sudden having a six-year-old son and no money I had to figure out how to make a living for the first time in my life and it really I worked very hard I brought a lot of passion to my life to my practice to my uh, creative life and uh I started getting a little complacent again. And uh, a few days ago, a person who is the major do donor in support of the Living Dying Project informed me that his business was not going well and he was going to have to withdraw his support. And all of a sudden, my practice took another jump in uh, passion. Okay. I've got to get it. I've got to come to the next level here. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if God didn't have to be whacking me with these financial catastrophes? In the meantime, I've had cancer, uh, which I've recuperated from. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you or I didn't need financial catastrophe, life-threatening illness, end of relationship? Uh, loved ones having crises 
to find the passion to keep coming back to being present. And uh, if I can... Let me read a short quote from Pena Chodron. Uh, she uses the word bodhicitta, which you may know as the awakened heart in Tibetan Buddhism. Just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening bodhicitta, so also is nurturing our ability to feel compassion. Compassion, however, is more emotionally challenging than loving kindness because it, involve, it involves the willingness to feel pain. It definitely requires the training of a warrior. When we practice generating compassion, we can expect to experience our fear of pain. Compassion practice is daring. It involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. The trick to doing this is to stay with emotional distress without tightening into aversion, to let fear soften us rather than harden into resistance. So, uh, I really love that quote. It really is a summary of the whole path. Can we move toward what scares us? When we begin to feel that tightening, when we don't feel the patience to be with what's difficult. Can we use that as a signal that we can just relax, have faith, that this is arising right now because it is exactly what God or the universe is creating in our lives because it is what we need to be with to heal next. Maybe I'll get this lesson so that I don't have to go through another financial crisis. Maybe I won't have to get cancer again. Maybe my son won't get sick. Maybe uh, on and on and on. And if I could give you a Christmas gift, I would love to instill in your heart that sense of passion to want to be with the truth so immediately that it's more important than anything else in your life. Suzuki Roshi, who founded San Francisco Zen Center, said the most important thing is to find the most important thing. We all know what the most important thing is. We know it with our minds. We know what the most important thing is. But so often the the cries of the ego structure, the illusion that we are separate, drown out that which we know. And in one way, practice is just learning to trust that voice, that there isn't something to accomplish, there is nothing lacking, there's nothing in excess, that what we have right now is exactly what is needed for our complete fulfillment. Uh, are there remarks?
answer questions. I like answering questions a lot more than I like going on and on. Please. Could you speak a little more to the difference between compassion and loving kindness? Sure. How are they different? Uh, the open heart, the heart of bodhicitta, can take various forms. Devotion, gratitude, loving kindness, compassion. Compassion is exactly the same as loving-kindness, but it's love in the context of suffering. So that we can feel love in relationship to God, in relationship to a partner, in relationship to nature or music, loving-kindness. But if there's suffering in our lives, can we open our heart to that? Stephen Levine very poetically says, compassion is learning to keep your heart open in hell. And uh, the, the, the quote there from Pema Chodron where she was saying, it involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. Compassion practice is daring. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. Obvious. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Now think how simple your life would be if your motivation for each action were what is the most compassionate thing to do right now? And often we think of compassion as what can I do to help that poor suffering person over there? But in the West, we really need to also, crucially, essentially, look at compassion for ourselves. All these practices uh, that come from the East presuppose that we're grounded, unneurotic, centered human beings that love our mommy and daddy. And when we look around the room, when we look in the mirror, that isn't necessarily what we see. So. Compassion for self, the ability to be with your suffering and not push it away, not get lost in it. Suffering arises. There are three possibilities. Pushing it away, getting lost in it, or having a compassionate response to it. The bodily energetic component uh, that's parallel to compassion is having appropriate boundaries. Generally, when I use the word boundaries, everybody moans a little bit because they know their boundaries aren't so great. So that, once again, there are these three possibilities. Suffering arises, overly rigid boundaries. I don't want to feel that. Suffering arises over permeable boundaries. Oh my God, what a catastrophe. What are we going to do about this? Appropriate boundaries. Ah, there is suffering here. I can keep my heart open. What is the skillful thing to do right now? Another way of talking about compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person or with part of yourself. 
So if I think that I'm better than you because I'm up here and I'm getting paid and you're over there and you're paying me, then no compassion f f on my part or your part. But if we're exactly equal, then compassion can happen. A uh, long time ago I was in India and had the great good fortune to be with the Dalai Lama before he got to be really well known. This was in Bodh Gaya, the place where the Buddha became enlightened. Very poor village in India and in this village there were a number of feral dogs running around with open sores in their bodies so thin that their ribs were showing through their skin. And people in the village said, please don't feed the dogs because it just prolongs their misery. Let them starve to death. It's best for them. And being rather soft-hearted, whether that was compassionate or naive, I don't really know. But basically, I bought old bread and fed the dogs. And at one point, we had uh, three of my friends and I had an audience with the Dalai Lama. He supposedly is the incarnation of Chinrezi, the Tibetan god of compassion. One of his pictures over that's him over there in the in the corner on the tonka, the thousand arm Avalokiteshwar, each one of those arms serving people with compassion. And he said, uh, which is greater? I'm the Dalai Lama, I'm the head of the Tibetan state and the Tibetan religion, or these twenty dogs running around in Bodh Gaya? And one of my friends, a good straight man, said, well, you're the Dalai Lama, you're much greater than these dogs. And he said, no, I'm one and they are many, they are greater than I. And at first I thought that he was using this as a teaching story, that he really didn't believe that, but he was you know, trying to make a point. But as the words kind of penetrated my body, I could really feel that he lived that. He meant that his body, that he was equal to one starving dog. And I had just gotten my PhD. I was off in India. I thought, well, here I am. I'm, I'm hot stuff. And uh, it was hard for me to be equal to one of those dogs. How many of you are familiar with the practice of Tong Len, taking and sending? Okay, well, maybe enough of you that there's really no need to present it again. But that's a, a wonderful practice to cultivate compassion. And uh, I find it particularly useful in the following sense, that one way to approach your practice is not trying to get really calm and centered and make everything else go away, but use meditation practice to uncover the subconscious patterns that keep arising in your mind. And after you uncover them, then you begin to do compassion practice for those parts of yourself. So my own example, when I was a small boy, I got two very severe electrical shocks. Once by putting a fork in a toaster to try to get the toast out and I couldn't let go for the longest time and nobody was around uh, and somebody had to come from a long, far away part of the house and I was like plugged in for about a minute. And it kind of fried my nervous system. And another time when I was much younger, I put a, a hairpin into an electric clock. I thought, isn't this great? These two things, I go and those two things. It, it, it fits perfectly. And I put that in there and it, it knocked me across the room. So I learned at a very young age, the world is not a safe place. 
that even following my bliss to get my toast or to put the two, the two pokey things in the two holes could get me almost dead. So that I began to plan a lot. I, I felt the world isn't safe. I've got to really pay attention, be hyper alert, so I don't get shocked in the larger sense of the word. So when I meditate, I notice there's a lot of planning thoughts. And for about two decades, I went to Vipassana retreats and Zen sessions and went all over Asia. And the planning thoughts kept coming and coming and coming and coming. And I would calm down at during the retreat, but at the end of the retreat, planning would begin again. When I finally started practicing Tonglen, I, I thought, okay, what's going on here? There's a part of me that doesn't feel safe. And I started doing Tonglen practice for the part of me that didn't feel safe. And that planning thing really began to calm down. Even after all of that Vipassana, all that Zen, it, it hadn't, I was missing the forest for the trees. Planning thought, planning thought, planning thought, planning thought, but not dropping down to the underlying, almost submerged feeling of the world isn't a safe place. So there's really two kinds of compassion. It's spelled two different ways. Compassion with a small c is something we do. I will do Tonglen for you. I will do Tonglen for the place in me that doesn't feel safe. But in another way, compassion with a capital C is our true nature. As I said before, one of the three qualities of the enlightened mind is compassion. That when the mind is open, of course we'll be compassionate. When the ego is out of the way, of course we'll be compassionate. Any other questions? Yeah, uh, if I may, I have um, this week was uh, you, you hit uh, <coughs> uh, a sensitive point uh, that I, on the uh, for me because uh, this week uh, I need to give a little bit of a background. I have a cousin that I grew up with in Cuba many years ago. He's only a few years younger than me. Uh, last time I saw him was 1969 when he got married for the first time. Uh -huh. uh, I had very little contact with him, uh, well, zero contact with him, other than uh, calling him when his mother passed away. Um, this week I found out that uh, his son, one of his sons from his second marriage, all I knew is that he had remarried, a 19-year-old got killed in Afghanistan uh, yeah, just a couple of days before. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I was really struck by my reaction to that. I spent the whole day uh, grieving uh -huh. in, in, a, in a very intense way, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way where I was thinking, why am I reacting so, I mean, this is somebody, well, I guess my, my biggest uh, sadness was about uh, knowing about this young man's existence for the first time when he died. And, uh, you know, I haven't been able to talk to his father, talk to his uncle, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I really have felt this tremendous loss. Uh, and at the same time, 
also felt frustrated about what can I do about this? What what kind of positive outcome can I uh, can I produce out of this sad event? And uh, I'm getting a lot of uh, well, all I can say is thank you, thank you. It's uh, the kind of thing that uh, at, at times had me wondering about the genuineness of my sadness because it's of somebody that I didn't know yeah. to begin with. You want to respond to him? Or you, uh, I'd, I'd like to if I might. Uh, grief is a feminine archetype. It's mysterious. And there is a danger of feeling I am grieving because my was he your nephew? Was that your yeah, cousin? Your your cousin's son or your yeah, cousin? my cousin's son. Okay, uh, I'm grieving because so and so died, and everybody's grieving. Everybody has lost a lot. Everybody in this room has lost a lot. We've lost part of our childhood dream. We've lost relationships. We've lost identities. And in order to have a life that works most of the time to earn a living, to find enjoyment, to have friends. When we experience these losses, we push a lot of the feelings down deep into the belly. And then something comes along that shatters this carefully constructed structure that keeps our grief back at a workable, manageable level. So that what you're feeling, I would strongly guess, <clears throat> is not just the grief that your cousin's son died, but that it's touching the reservoir of grief that has been accumulated over a lifetime. So that when something comes along, some shock in your life, whether it's the death of somebody or a financial loss or an illness, there is this incredible spiritual opportunity those fucking opportunities <laughs> to transmute through compassion the feeling of separation and loss and grief to a compassionate connectedness. And to be able to feel the sadness, to feel it in your body, to not necessarily have to connect it to Cuba and Afghanistan and somebody I don't know. Those are just ideas in your mind. There's this living process going on of loss that you're feeling. And that's a, that's a healing process. To the extent that you can meet those painful, difficult feelings and sensations emotionally and physically, directly, nakedly, openly, then healing will happen. To the extent we have to make a big story about it and say, I'm feeling this because of that, and maybe it'll get better. And uh, I've met people who say, uh, my, my wife died a week ago, and I don't feel anything. What's wrong with me? And then I'll meet somebody else who said, my partner died eight years ago, and I was walking down the street, and I heard a piece of music, and it was like, he died just yesterday, and what's wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong with either one of these people. Grief comes and grief goes. And I would suggest that, that 
rather than waiting till you get the phone call about somebody has died, when we're meditating and you notice that you're lost in your mind, in that moment there's some grief. In that moment you're, you're separated from yourself. Can you feel this very subtle grief that arises so many times during the day and begin to have a relationship with that so that then when a bigger loss occurs, you have learned somehow through your life to be transmuting grief into compassion. Okay, so you wanted to say, I think there are a couple more hands were up there. Jeff. Um, uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, I would like to know more about Tonglen. Tonglen. Uh, and I can research that, but it made me think of how the last couple of years during the month of March, I sat the Pasta retreat at Spirit Rock. I'm sorry, you what? Sat the Pasta retreat yeah, yeah. at Spirit Rock. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I know I have a sort of Nordic disposition towards gushy. Kindness, but there was a practice all the time to do that, and it just seemed to get too precious in a way uh, for me. Like, uh, what's the difference? Uh, is there one even between the practice of loving kindness and the different Brahmin uh, Haras? Okay. Uh, the Brahmin Biharas are the four heavenly states of compassion, loving-kindness, equanimity or balance, and sympathetic joy, which is the opposite of jealousy, the feeling happiness at the good fortune of someone else. Uh, And all of these these qualities have what are called near enemies and far enemies. Okay, so the... the, uh, the far enemy of loving-kindness is hatred. What do you think the near enemy would be? It looks a lot like loving-kindness, but it's not. Pity. Huh? Pity. I can't hear you. Pity. No, pity is the near enemy of compassion. Uh, looks like compassion. Indifference? What? Indifference? Indifference is the far enemy of compassion. We're looking for... <laughs> I'm sorry to make this so complicated. So the near enemy of loving kindness is desire or attachment. Okay? You meet somebody, you start falling in love with them. Is it love, is it loving kindness, or is it attachment? They look a lot alike. But there's a very different feeling in the heart between the preciousness, uh, the emotionality... The, the grasping at a, at a sweet feeling and the spacious, open, uh, unattached feeling of true loving kindness. And the, the action that comes out of those, I like you, could look like the same action, but the inner motivation, the quality, that it, uh, the inner quality that it's coming from in you can be very, very different. So... Uh, It's, it's very useful to watch. 
like today, I was, I was driving here, I was driving down Van Ness, there was a guy with a sign at the stoplight, I happened to stop, there he was, he had a sign, I don't even know what it said. And I opened the window and gave him a couple of bucks. Now, was I doing that out of pity? Or was I doing that out of compassion? Uh, and plus, I'm driving here, am I on time, what, what am I going to talk about today? Uh, and I had to look at, why am I doing this? So, when you're at the retreat there, are you feeling real loving-kindness? Or is that the near enemy? Is there some attachment that's, that's uh, coloring the whole thing? Let me give a plug here. I have a website, livingdying.org, that does have uh, two, one brief and one very long description of the Tonglen practice. Uh, one by Joan Halifax and one by me, Roshi Joan Halifax. And so if you're interested in what we're talking about here today, you could take a look at the website as well. There are some flyers out there by the uh, fellowship newsletters over there by the tea setup for uh, meditation groups that I lead called Healing at the Edge. There's one in Oakland on Monday nights. There's... Uh, one in Marin on Wednesday nights, and there's two in Sonoma County, Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday evening. And it might be that the Oakland group gets supplanted by one here in the city. Uh, there's interest here and the interest there. I've been doing it there for about four years. So if you want to talk to me about that after the talk, I'll be around for a while. And there are flyers, as I say, over there by the tea setup. You had your hand up back there in the back. Well, yes, it's, it's... So thank you for the talk. First of all, it was very interesting and helpful. And it related to me also to something that I just read in the New York Times opinion section on the nature of consciousness. Uh, and so the so I noticed in the story about the Dalai Lama that he didn't really, as, as at least the part you described, he didn't comment on villagers' perspective about feeding the dogs is a bad thing. It will prolong their suffering. And so I'm wondering about our perspectives on death in general. <laughs> well, I've got about two more minutes here. <laughs> perspectives on death in general? Uh, See if I can summarize everything in on to about 90 seconds here. Spiritual practice is fundamentally about letting go of identification with that which dies, which is our body and personality, which are always changing, and beginning to identify fully with that which does not die, which is pure consciousness. We are all consciousness. 
And in fact, we're not connected. We are one. We are the same consciousness. Death, for better or worse, in the West is the one topic that forces us to look at the truth that I have just stated. That one can avoid who one is by staying busy, by accumulating a lot of stuff, by doing the things that Western culture uh, encourages us to do. But when the doctor says, I'm sorry, but I've got some very bad news for you, and it doesn't look like you're going to be around for more than a few more weeks or a few more months, uh, and then suppose you're taking a breath, and you think, how many more breaths am I going to take? Am I going to have more than a few, few more breaths? Suppose that, that this next breath you're taking, as you, everybody dies on an out-breath. Everybody goes to sleep on an out-breath. So when you take a breath, could you imagine that this next out-breath is the end? That you're so fully with this breath as you breathe out, that you're dying. And the next in-breath is the first breath you will ever take. You're born in that moment. And that you're going through life dying and being born. And life is that fresh and vivid and uh, awake. That's why I choose to be around death, not because I'm Mother Teresa and drag or I find death particularly fascinating, but that it, it keeps forcing me to disidentify with all of these crutches that I grab onto to make more bearable the grief that I have in my life. So that there is this underlying fear of death, and then there is this all these patterns we put on top of that to not feel it. We construct a personality very precisely to not feel our fear of death. And our personality, living in our personality, is really uncomfortable. But the ego prefers it to the direct encounter with our mortality. Awakening, spiritually awakening, is dying into the moment. Thank you all very much. I hope you have a wonderful, joyful, blessed holiday. Thank you, Dale. Okay, it's uh, time for announcements. Uh, let me begin by uh, um, uh, mentioning that GBF uh, asks for a weekly don donation of $10 or more to meet our monthly expenses. Uh, this includes our rent, uh, speaker honorarium, uh, newsletters, productions, and mailing costs, uh, the Larkin Street Youth uh, Center dinner uh, that we provide uh, once a month, I believe. Uh, if you wish to see an itemized breakdown of our monthly expenses, they are listed on our card that can be viewed uh, on the table with the other GDF uh, stuff outside. Um, our host will be coming around at, uh, during the social half hour that we have afterwards uh, with the Donna Bowl. So we'll appreciate your contributions. And uh, we have, uh, who's our host uh, today? Yeah, my name is Tage. At 10.20, I remembered I was your host. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some
some treats outside. <laughs> all of you enjoy. Um, there's some hot water uh, for tea. If you use, uh, if you have tea, you could just wash your mug out with some hot soapy water in the kitchen. That would be great. I will be going around with the dial The suggested donation is ten dollars. Um, and there's a mailing list on the credenza. And if you're interested in getting information from us, um, you can sign up there, and uh, including our newsletter. And then at 12.30, there's a group that gets together informally at the door to go out for lunch. If you'd like to join them, you're welcome. And uh, David Lewis will be now, our, now over here, <laughs> will be our, our speaker next week. So we look forward to to your talk, yeah. Yeah, Jeff. Uh, I just wanted to thank uh, Tom Bruin for last Sunday stepping up uh, because I forgot I was supposed to be facilitating at that today. So uh, it's part of the power side of works. Yeah, Tom. Um, so we have a prison outreach project, uh, a prison pentile project that we operate. Um, and it's, it's really about spiritual friendship. It's not about forming you know, a relationship or romance or anything like that. And, and there are uh, boundaries in place to ensure anonymity and all of this stuff. Um, we've got a couple people on the list who are seeking to be paired with uh, a pen pal. Um, and our program director wanted me to mention one who's a uh, um, bisexual and all these things. He, he was looking for someone who he hopes will understand. Um, so if you've ever thought of perhaps joining the program or would be interested in learning more about it, please um, see me afterwards and I can point you to our resources online. Oh, yeah. um, I'd like to invite you all to uh, join me for a solstice ritual uh, event next weekend, Friday evening and Saturday. Uh, at Interplace in Oakland. It's a wonderful opportunity to um, open up to darkness and stillness and mystery, the season that we're in, uh, in a very supportive community. We'll be doing some sitting meditation, some movement, uh, dancing, doing a spiral dance uh, through a pine branch labyrinth. It's quite beautiful, chanting, journeying. <laughs> And uh, I have flyers if you'd like some during the social uh, time. Yeah. Um, there is a uh, LGBT Buddhist uh, sitting group on Mondays at the Gay Center uh, from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. every uh, Monday. It's a sweet little group. It's a very diverse uh, mixed group, smaller than this, 12 to 20 people usually show up. And it's the same format. We sit for a half hour, and the Dharma talk is only about 25 minutes, since it's only an hour of time. And it's just uh, in room 300 at the Gay Center. It's been going on for about almost 12 years. Um, and if anybody wants to start the week with another group sit, it's a very sweet, uh, sweet thing to do. So uh, that's uh, Mondays at 5.30 at the Gay Center. <coughs> Okay, so time for our dedication of merit, and then of course we'll, we'll have a half an hour.
power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness, may all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow, may all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.